0: Hi, I'm Spencer Christian. I've been a broadcast journalist and weathercaster for more than 50 years. And over those years, I've met many remarkable people, remarkable people with remarkable insight. Now, I'll be talking with them about the issues of the day and about their personal journeys. I'll even share a few of my own. So come join me after the weather, and we'll learn together. Welcome to After the Weather, I'm Spencer Christian. Uh, the recent storms that brought heavy rain and snow to northern california have obviously had beneficial effects replenishing our water supply dramatically boosting the sierra snowpack but the heavy volume of rain in a relatively short span of time may have detrimental impacts on the san francisco estuary its waters and wetlands its ecosystem its lowland residential communities joining us now to sort this out is warner chabot executive director of the san francisco estuary institute and warner it's great to have you on the podcast again.
1: Thanks, glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So, oh, I didn't even mention in the in the mix there rising uh, seawaters. There's a that's another contributing factor to our concerns about the estuary. So, let me ask you this. Just what have been the major impacts of these recent rains and and snowfall on the estuary?
1: Well, for the- for the health of the estuary itself, I think has been, frankly, a, you know, positive. Um, you know, more water flowing through the the ecosystem is always a a, a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, for the communities adjacent to the estuary, however, there, there have been problems. I'd say that for climate change, it, there's for the San Francisco Bay Area, essentially, like we're eight million people in a bathtub. We have many different issues that affect you know us on having to adapt to climate change, but I'd say that the triple whammy, the triple threat to the Bay Area is a combination of rising seas, rising groundwater, and lowland flooding from more intense and extreme storms. And many of our most vulnerable, underserved, low-income communities tend to be at that lowest area. Think East Palo Alto, Alviso, West Oakland, Richmond. So those communities are more subject to potential flooding activities. We've seen far greater damage done in places like the uh, Pajaro Valley um and outside of, of, of the Bay Area. So we haven't had significant intense flooding um, in in very many communities, but uh this is a we're on kind of the, the climate change roller coaster uh right. for the foreseeable future. And this is probably more of a warning of what's likely to come with the, the tendency of more extreme weather, more extreme storms concentrated in a you know tighter period, and the potential for more intensive flooding, especially in low-income, underserved, low-lying communities around the edge of the bay. Right.
0: Now, I don't want to ignore those uh, underserved communities because that's a, an important issue, and I want to get back yep. to that. But uh, getting back to what you said earlier, the overall health of the estuary is pretty good. I was concerned, or I was wondering if uh, there had been a concern about uh, toxic pollutants because of the sudden surge of water with, with the rising seas, with the uh, areas that have been flooded, with the heavy rains. I'm rather pleasantly surprised to hear that the overall health of the estuary is pretty good.
1: It is. I mean, I I, I think the issue of the, these more intense storms, you know, and you, you raised the issue of, of of toxicity, you know, I don't think there's been a a notable increase necessarily in Toxics coming downstream from, uh, you know, the upper Sacramento area, most of our our toxic issues in the Bay Area are as a result of the 8 million, almost 8 million people that that live here. And if you stop and think about it, many of the shoreline areas uh, were once either dump sites, industrial sites, military bases. And over the years, those entities have tended to leave a significant amount of of toxic pollutants in the, the soil. Um, Now, as we move forward, um, one of the issues that we've discovered more recently, uh, or become more aware of, is the issue of rising groundwater. As the sea levels rise, they push groundwater. We have a, a, for much of the Bay Area, we have a groundwater table that's rather close to the the surface. Sometimes, you know, it's close to three feet uh, to the surface, uh, from the, the surface. So with the The data from both the regional water board and the Department of Toxic Substance Control, we've estimated that there are about 5,200 sites around the Bay Area that are identified as having some toxic contaminants in the soil. Um, And as uh, the seas rise, it tends to push the groundwater up closer to the surface and and has the potential of bringing those toxic contaminants up into the, the sewer system, the basements of, of homes, um, and even the, the, the surface itself. So it has the potential of increasing toxic contamination around the Bay Area. And it may well be one of the most significant uh, equity issues that the Bay Area faces as it tackles climate adaptation in the, in the decades ahead.
0: Yeah. Now, do you see that governments, local governments and the state government, have the will to do what is necessary to uh to confront the problem of rising
1: groundwater? I believe so. I think you have two agencies that are in charge of this. One the the regional water board and in here in the bay area and second the statewide uh, DTSC Department of Toxic Substance Control. I think both agencies have um, highly dedicated, highly committed staff who are going to be looking at this problem and probably trying to 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 tackle it. it I think it's a It's a new and emerging issue. It's a complex issue, um, but it's one where I believe that um, the leadership from local officials um, will be heard and responded to by um, regional and and, and state officials.
0: Now, is this going to be a very costly um, undertaking, Uh, you know, in terms of dollars and and taxes?
1: Unknown at this point. I'd say the short answer is a, a very strong, likely yes, Mm-hmm. I think maybe maybe more significant is the fact that two regional agencies over the last year have been looking at the overall issue of climate change and adapting to climate change in the Bay Area. Each county and region have been looking at shoreline protection strategies to deal with sort of this triple whammy of sea level rise, flooding, and, and rising groundwater, and um This week, the Bay Conservation Development Commission and the Metropolitan Planning Commission are gonna issue a report based on a year's worth of study. And they're gonna estimate that the cost of totaling up all of the shoreline infrastructure projects to deal with climate change and rising seas is likely to be somewhere in the $110 billion cost estimate, which is huge. They've also looked at available likely funding to tackle this problem, they've identified about 5 billion. So we have about $105 billion shortfall. And even those estimates are probably preliminary and and low. So I'd say going forward, the Bay Area probably has 10,000 scientists and 10,000 engineers to tackle the the complexity of the problem. But the real challenge is likely to be more in governance and finance. How are we gonna get nine counties, 100 constituents to work together, and how are we going to come up with financing systems to pay for the substantial investments that we're going to need to make in climate adaptation to get us to the year 2050?
0: Right. No. Well, obviously, the the cost of projects like this is always a, a, an issue. When you talk about protecting the shoreline, what kind of infrastructure improvements need to be made? But be specific to protect the shoreline.
1: Well, well probably. Uh, the number one necessity is simply protecting our wetlands that act as a buffer in many low-lying areas to storm surge and, and while also providing wildlife for you know habitat areas. Right. Uh, the, our organization, the San Francisco Estuary Institute, did a study called Sediment for Survival, where we looked at um, the status of our wetlands and how much sediment is, is going into them to keep pace with sea level rise, and what we concluded was it's going to take several uh, hundred million cubic yards of sediment to be added to be supplemented beyond what nature is supplying to wow. those wetlands, so that they don't drown? And yeah. if you just consider the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, is three. If you were to fill it with mud, marbles, diamonds, whatever, it's three quarters of a million cubic yards. So you're going to need possibly up to two to three hundred. Salesforce Towers equivalent laying side by side around the edge of the San Francisco Bay to come up with the added sediment that's going to be necessary just to keep pace with sea level rise. That in and of itself is going to require a massive effort among across nine counties to figure out how to you know, legislate, manage, and, and and find ultimately the amount of sediment that's going to be needed to add to the wetlands just to keep pace with them alone. That, that's not the only answer, wetlands right. restoration is a big part, but and it may be kind of a, I'd call it, the first step, the low-hanging fruit. Then you have a variety of other issues. We may need to even consider, it's a third rail, it's highly controversial, but the horrible term of planned retreat. There may be some areas that we just say, we can't protect them. If you build a levee to block the rising sea what you end up doing is you may protect one area like foster city for example but what you're doing is just pushing that rising water around to adjacent areas like south palo alto or east i'm sorry east palo alto and other areas and you're also as waves occur on the bay you're bouncing those waves across the bay to erode the shoreline of the communities across the bay and you're not you're not ultimately solving the problem of rising groundwater that a levy doesn't protect you from. So we have a complex range of issues.
0: How serious a problem is sea level rise for the Bay Area, uh, or for all of California, for that matter? Uh, and what kind of time frame are we looking at for when we, uh, I don't want to say st- should start to panic, but how much time do we have to really prepare for sea level rise?
1: I'd say the shortest answer is that the San Francisco Bay Area is ground zero for sea level rise on the West Coast of the United States. How yeah. much time do we have? I think we have a hell of a lot we need to do in the next 10 years if we're going to be really prepared. I, all the different estimates indicate that sea level rise is likely to even accelerate in about 15 years around the, the mid, you know, 2035ish. If you take California, the US Geological Survey did an estimate a few years back, probably about 5 years ago, and they they estimated the total assets at risk along the entire California coast including San Francisco Bay. And they came up with a number of $150 billion of assets at risk along the entire California coast from sea level rise and storm surge. But they estimated that two thirds of that, or $100 billion of what's at risk, is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And a huge percentage of that is in San Mateo and Marin County that have an enormous number of assets. And if you stop and think about it, we have in the Bay Area, I think I said this before, sort of a triple whammy issue of rising seas, rising groundwater and lowland flooding from more extreme and and frequent storms. So that is really the core issue that the Bay Area has to deal with. There's a variety of different estimates. The state of California put out in about 2017 or 18, uh, an estimate that had a variety of uh, factors that said, you know, whether um, emissions are are low, medium, or high, and so they even came up with by the end of the century, in you know, in almost a little less than eighty years, anywhere from two to ten feet of sea level rise were were likely along the California coast and within the San Francisco Bay Area. The bay, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, which has jurisdiction over uh, land use and development within the edge of the Bay. Um, is taking a a very cautious approach and they are saying that we should be prepared for as much as as, as 5 feet of or 4.9 feet of sea level rise by 2050 in 30 years. And that means that if we're going to take significant action to try to protect our shoreline, whether it's um, adding and, and, and increasing the resilience of our of our Bay wetlands or building dikes or planned retreat or whatever, we need to be taking a significant amount of action in the next 10 to 15 years to be able to protect shoreline communities from rising seas. And it's important in the Bay Area to recognize that many of our low-income, underserved, disadvantaged communities, East Palo Alto, Alviso, West Oakland, Richmond, et cetera, are right, um, the canal district in, in San Rafael, are right there at sea level. And so it is, it is those more disadvantaged communities that are most likely to suffer the most and have the, the greatest adverse impact from both, well, not both, but sort of the triple whammy of rising seas, rising groundwater, and lowland flooding.
0: Now, the, the time frame you cite there makes it clear that uh, we need to take serious action and we need to take it soon and the the monetary figure you put out there on the loss of assets it's just staggering uh, yeah. but there would also be loss of life am I right if
1: uh in the worst case scenario in the worst case scenario uh, absolutely and and I think it's it's probably fair to assume that even those estimates and you know that's that's just direct damage to the assets to the land and the resources, the houses, the the freeways and stuff. Right. You add to that the fact that think about our 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 airports, our, our freeway system. What that will do to um, unravel the uh, the the economy of of the entire Bay Area if you can't get to work, or people can't get to hospitals, or or any goods can't be 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 transported around the Bay Area. Just think think about when you drive, you know, from you know, Palo Alto to 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 San Francisco, or you're going to the airport, or or going to Oakland Airport. Just think how, or you're driving from sort of Emeryville up to Albany. Just think how close you are, right at the edge of San Francisco Bay, and how that entire freeway system. Think about if you're going across the Bay Bridge from east to west, how the the toll station, how how close that is to the the edge of the bay and the right. the the height of, of the water at the at the bay, right at that full state. Now, so, uh, it was a huge challenge for us.
0: No, I, I i don't want I don't want our listeners to uh, feel like we're being um, prophets of doom here once again. Yeah. So let's let's talk about um, something on the positive side. You and our you and I communicate fairly regularly by way of email, and you sent me yeah. a very interesting article uh, by Hannah Ritchie entitled "The Right Kind of Climate Optimism." So uh, tell us. Some reasons for being optimistic and for feeling that you know we can survive in this age of uh, increased pace of climate change.
1: I'd say two things give me hope. Uh, number one, in in a single word, it's women. Every climate meeting I've uh, gone to in the last decade was always seventy five percent women. Uh-huh. They can they consistently accomplish more good with less ego. Think about it. Fifty <laughs> six. Sixty years ago, Sylvia McLaughlin and two other women started the Save the Bay movement here in the Bay Area. Right now, women either run or lead the planning efforts for most major local, regional, and state agencies that are tackling climate change. Uh, Felicia Marcus led the state water board during the, the drought crisis. Women are in charge of the Coastal Conservancy, the Regional Water Board, the Bay Area Regional Collaborative, the San Francisco Estuary Partnership. They lead most of the Bay Area's equity and social justice nonprofits and community-based organizations in the Bay Area. Uh-huh. Women planners are now leading climate planning efforts at the Bay Conservation Development Commission, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, and in many sustainability officers and planning officers in cities of the 100 jurisdictions around the Bay Area. So that's the number one thing that gives gives me hope. I We recruit people coming out of Berkeley and, and we get... Uh, these, these women that come out of school, um, men and women, but, but heavily women that have like a dual degree in sort of a hardcore hyphenated science like hydrogeology and computer graphics. So they're able to do a deep dive in the science issues and be able to present them in a manner that can be explained to the public, to the news media, to uh, local el- elected officials. I think the, the second thing that gives me hope is anybody that chooses sort of hope and optimism over sort of fear. And pessimism. I've been involved in sort of political issues and and campaigns for for 50 years. And overly simplistically, I'd say almost all politics boils down to either hope or fear. Uh, right. Hope is uh, a lot better. Pessimism. Uh, you know, think about it. You know, President Obama, his campaign poster was was hope. Uh, currently, President Trump. Uh, Ex President Trump has has emphasized fear. Look right. what's got us. Look what's got us got us further. Exactly. I think that you know um, any anyone who cares about the well being of future generations and and focuses on hope and optimism, I think is moving the the, the ball forward. Um, the other thing, those are the people that have given us solar and wind power um, that is uh, you know dropping and batteries that are dropping in in. Uh, and price dramatically. We're coming up with new ways of of um, dealing with deforestation. Deforestation has, you know, peaked you know decades ago, and it's been slowly declining. Sales of gas and diesel cars are now falling, and electric car purchases are are, are going up. Yeah. So I think scare, scaring people doesn't work. We need optimism and hope to to make progress. I think the people who think the world is changeable and believe they can be part of the change are 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 a lot more fun to work with. I, I just know that <laughs> yeah. uh, pessimism is the most useless emotion on on earth. It tends to paralyze people, and if you have hope and optimism, you end up uh, being able to do good things, work with really wonderful people. Um, and I think it was I think it was uh, you know the anthropologist Margaret Mead had said something who studied cultures around the world who said something like you know never believed that. A, a small committed group of individuals can can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. So I, I probably mangled the yeah. quote, but but well, essentially, no, you,
0: you got the it's... point across <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you uh, what you've described here uh, is sort of is exactly, I guess the middle ground between. Uh, getting back to the article by by Hannah Ritchie about uh, the the right kind of climate optimism, what you've described is the middle ground between what she called climate pessimism and complacent optimism. You, you don't yeah. want to be a complacent optimist. You want to be uh, an active, uh, an, an, an I guess, an optimistic activist or or, yeah. or an active optimist. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, you, you have to have optimism and a belief that that you can change the world. I've, right. I've been lucky I've, 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 over the years worked on on issues where it was a long shot uh we were underdogs in in campaigns to achieve certain things um and back in the 70s i worked on on an underdog campaign that resulted in creating the california coastal commission that i think over the years has done more to protect the coast and it's a system that's been copied by over 50 countries uh, around the world Um, other things that i've worked on that were long shots And, and if you have one victory like that you have a belief that it gives you a lot of hope and juice and uh, um, ability to try to work on future things. And I I, I served 75 brilliant scientists at the San Francisco Estuary Institute of people that are committed to making the world better, that bring good science to uh, uh, policymakers and uh, kind of represent that that level of hope and active optimism that you can change the world right. incrementally. You're not going to do it overnight. The challenges are, are significant, but I believe the Bay Area probably has more intellectual capacity than almost anywhere else on, on Earth. We have mm-hmm. more talent. We have people that are um, environmentally minded. They are aware of the science. We have the technology, you know, the we're, the we're kind of the galactic headquarters for every major technology company that has changed how most of the world accesses knowledge, entertains themselves, and and thinks about about the, the future. So I think there's a potential here for the Bay Area to be a national, if not international, model for how an urban region at the edge of the sea tackles climate change with hope and vision.
0: And, and we have people like you, Warner Chabot, who come on podcasts and go on newscast and, uh, and talk about, not only identify our challenges, but talk about why we can be hopeful that we are able to meet those challenges and, and basically save the planet. And I've, I've got uh, grandsons who are uh, eight and six years old. And so when they turn to me and say, Pop, why are you optimistic? I, I can say, here's why. Uh, and of course, what you have outlined for us gives us that reason for it. Thank, thanks for coming on again, uh, and we're going to call on you again because, uh, you know, one podcast, <laughs> one line of questions and answers from one Chabot isn't going to answer uh, all of the challenges of climate change. But we'll have you on again soon, my friend. Thank you to our guest for joining us today, and thank you for listening. After the Weather was edited by Leonard Torres, our executive producer is Marcus Young this podcast is a product of ABC7 News. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and leave us a like if you liked this episode. I'll talk to you later. Take care and so long for now.